I would invite you to turn to Psalm 139. Uh, despite what Todd said last Sunday, I will not preach Psalm 119 uh, through its entirety, uh, but there is a psalm that is pretty lengthy, and, uh, but we're going to work our way through it this morning in Psalm uh, 139. And uh, just a joy to be able to meditate really on this rich psalm for the last couple of weeks because it displays God's infinite character and His power over all His creation. You know, God, he, he formed the universe out of nothing. He didn't have any raw materials. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He formed everything. You know, God sustains the sun, and it's about 94.3 million miles away from the earth. You move it a few inches closer, we freeze to death. A few inches further away, uh, a few, few, few inches closer, we, we burn up, I should say, and you move it further away, we freeze to death. But that's God sustaining all of that. That's his massive power on display. You know, there's 100 billion stars in the galaxy. But yet Psalm 147.4 tells us that God determines the number of stars, and he knows them all by name. That's how amazing our God is. But even though God is infinite, did you realize that God is very much intimate in the lives of his people? He's intimate with us. You know, out of 7.8 billion people in the world, guess what? He knows you perfectly and completely and intimately if you're his child. That's the beauty of God that we serve. 100,000 strands of hair on the average person's head, uh, operative word, average uh, person's head, 100,000 strands of hair. And guess what? God knows every single one. Knows every single one. That's the personal aspect of God. Even though he is infinite, he's very much intimate in the lives of his people. And that's what we're going to see in this psalm that I'm going to read as we look at these omni-attributes of God today. And you see that David, he personalizes it, really understanding that he has a, a great relationship of death with the almighty God of this universe. And that's our hope today, is that this will deepen our appreciation and adoration of God, but at the same time, allow us to seek a more intimate relationship with the Almighty. But let me read this psalm in front of us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Uh, David says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, before, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, and when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, and your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. And when as yet there was not none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, and how vast the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, and depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with utmost hatred, and they have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me 
and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Gracious Father, thank you for this glorious text. I ask right now that you give me strength and grace, clarity of thought and wisdom, that I might boldly proclaim the excellencies of you and, and exalt Christ among us. Be honored in all that's said and done, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 139, it is a, it's a wisdom psalm, but also it's a, a very personal psalm that David wrote. You know, he wrote this psalm as he was being pursued, as we see that he was being pursued by men of bloodshed, men that were after him, men that wanted him dead. But as we'll see over these four stanzas that are six verses each, we have four different movements. We see themes of meditation and confession. We also see prayer and reflection. All of that comes out of this marvelous psalm that, that highlights the omni-attributes of God. And David wants the believer to realize that, that God knows you. And not only does he know you, he loves you. There's nothing that you can do to be separated from God's love. And he says, instead of shying away from that divine scrutiny, it should, we should welcome it and thus worship God rightly. And really, the desire today is to see that meditation on the attributes of God should really lead us to adoration, should lead us to consolation and edification and, and even just sanctification. We should be more sanctified because we are in tune with this intimate, holy, infinite God. And we'll see that when we look at four truths about this infinite God. The title of this morning's sermon is really our infinitely intimate God, because even though he's infinite, He's intimate with us. But let's look at this first truth that this psalm teaches us about our infinite God. And that's this. Our infinite God, he, he knows us. He knows us. In verses 1 through 6, we really will see the omniscience of God. He knows us. You know, this doctrine of omniscience, it really teaches us that God is all-knowing and that he is ultimately the criterion of truth and falsity. So that ideas that come by him are always discerned, and he's always true. That's his knowledge of everything. But we see that our infinitely intimate God, he knows us uniquely. Look at verse 1. David says, O oh Lord, you have searched me, and you've known me. When he talks about you, he's, he's using the emphatic you, O oh Lord. You know, as Hebrew would say, he could almost be saying, you alone has searched me, and you've known me. There's been people that have, that have examined David. There's people that have observed David. But he said, Lord, you have, have searched me thoroughly and completely, and you know me uniquely. You know, that search, it really is an investigate thoroughly or spy out. It's a completed act. It's used in the preterite sense here to, to let us know that it's done. And you know, when God searches us, it's not like he's, he's trying to discover new information. That's not what David was saying. God didn't have to like examine David because he was going to find something new. He says, you're searching me to be with me, to understand me completely and to provide all of heaven's attention, which is just amazing to think about. God knows you that way. He's suspending the stars. But guess what? He's thinking about you. And David was blown away by this. You think about the person that knows you the most, the person that that understands you. They can see a look on your face and automatically know what you're thinking. My wife does that to me sometimes. It's kind of scary. I'm like, man, how does she know that? I'm just giving it away all up in here. But the Lord, he, he has an even more intimate relationship with you to where he doesn't have to look at your facial expression. He knows you. That's what David is. And he's, he's amazed by this. He's amazed. He says, you've known me. The divine perception that you have is it's not just informational. It's experiential. It's personal. That's what God has with all of his people. And David says, oh, Lord, because he's filled with amazement as he thinks about all these things. It's like, God, you're, you're out there controlling this whole universe, but you're also considering me. It's almost like what you hear in Psalm 8:4. What is man that you would even take thought of him? That should amaze you in the morning when you wake up. God is thinking about you. He knows the course of your day. He's, he knows your ways. And the point that David is making here is that God keenly is aware of us. You know, we have to 
to use all kind of apps uh, to figure out where people are. You know, Life 360, keep up with the fam, keep up with what's going on. You know, as sophisticated as technology is, it pales in comparison to the precision that God has on each and every one of us. He knows our ways. He knows who we are. He knows where we go. Look at verse 2. He says, when I sit down and when I rise up, David is using poetic device called mirrorism. He's he's allowing the opposites to intensify the meaning. He says, when I sit down and when I rise up, when I'm on my path and when I'm laying down, you've enclosed me behind and before. He's ultimately letting him know that, that God is with him. He knows him. He goes everywhere with him. And this is something that allows him to understand that he should give God praise for that. God knows who you are. He knows where you go and he knows what you're thinking. He says further there in verse 2, he says, you understand my thoughts from afar. You know, David realizes that God knew what he was thinking, but also more importantly, he knows our heart motivations. Isn't that amazing and staggering to think about that, that God knows our heart motivations? You know, I used to sit there and be thinking like, man, I, I better not say that to that person. But this, this text has convicted me to the point where it's like, not only am I not going to say it, I'm not even going to think it. Because God scrutinizes my, my thoughts from afar. He knows my heart motivation even before the activity has taken place. That's something that David gives God praise about. But you should stop and think about it. God knows what's going on. In verse 3, he says he, he, he scrutinizes the path of the and also the lying down, and he's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. When David is talking about the path, he really is saying every activity of the day. When you get up in the morning, brushing your teeth, washing your face, the breakfast, if you go to work, on time or late, all of that God knows. He's with you. He understands every single activity in the day. And then he says, even in your lying down, even when you're asleep and, and not even thinking about God and And all that he's doing, he's thinking about you and what you've gone through. That's how God is doing with us. And while these thoughts can seem very intimidating, David is comforted by these because he realized that God loves him. He knows that. God is there because he's watching over him with precision and care at all times. And even in Psalm 121, 3 and 4, God says these words. He says, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not sleep or slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. Even when you're sleeping, you can be at ease because God is with you, seeing everything, and he is protecting you. That's why David was amazed at this infinite God that he had a deep-seated relationship with. You know, some people think that, that the Lord is really responding to all of our actions and that he's learning on the fly what things happen and occur. But, you know, God gives us insight into that and let us know that he's aware of our words even before we form them. Even before they're on the tip of our tongue, he knows them from the heavens. But look at verse 5. He says, you've enclosed me behind and before, and you've laid your hand upon me. You know, behind and before, it it helps us to see that God surrounds his people. It's amazing, you know, when they they were growing up in Israel, they would see that the mountains, they were close and anybody that has ever gone there, they, they have the same experience uh, about these mountains. It says it seems like you could just reach out and touch them. But that was God's way of, of letting his people know, I'm surrounding you with my grace. But even so, God is even more surrounding of his people. He says, I close you from behind and before. I'm with you, always there to protect you every step of the way. And how do we know this? Because David writes in the B part of verse 5, he says, you laid your hand upon me. This is really God's hand is signifying blessing and care. Whenever God was to lay his hand upon his people, it was to identify with them that, that I am yours and you are mine. You are my sheep of my pasture. And even Christ lets us know that over and over again, that we're his people. Even with his hand, he he told Moses in Exodus 33:22, it was God that covered him with his hand as he veiled his glory, unveiled his glory there. He showed Moses in the cleft of that rock, and he covered him with his hand so that he would be able to be amazed at this holy God. And also the, the prophet Isaiah, 
41.10, he says, I will strengthen you, surely, and I will help you, and my righteous right hand will uphold you. How does that feel, saying, to know that God, he knows us intimately so that he can surround us and uphold us with his love? There shouldn't be any situation in our life that should allow us to feel as though we're outside of the bounds of God and his connection with us. And David was so fascinated with God's perception and, and discernment because he realized that it's actually favorable for the believer. You see, the unbeliever still has the wrath of God hovering over their life. And even though he, he allows the sun to shine and the, and the rain to fall, feeds them with the crops and the animals, the wrath is still hovering over their life. But when you're saved by the grace, trusting in Jesus Christ, God is intimately with you. And when he hovers over you, it is with care. It's with delight. It's with God being able to show favor to those who love him. And what is David's response by this? In verse 6, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't even attain to it. David confesses that he is simply dumbfounded when he realizes that the depth of God's concern and attention and affection for him. That's amazing. I'll quote Charles Spurgeon here. Uh, to appease our fellow David, uh, elder David Duncan, I'm sure he'd be happy about this, but, but, but Spurgeon says this, he says, the believer will never fully comprehend God, but he is to apprehend God faithfully. That's it. We won't comprehend God fully, but we're to apprehend him faithfully, to perceive him, to appreciate him, to take in as much as humanly possible so that we might love him and live in a manner that's worthy of him. Amen? That's what we're to do. We want to discover the greatness of this God. And, and that's probably what Paul was thinking when he said in Romans eleven thirty three, 33, he said, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and unfathomable his ways. He just talked about this glorious gospel in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And it causes him to burst in praise and adoration of this great God. And that's what we should do, brothers and sisters, when we read the scriptures. We should think about this amazing character of God and that he knows us, and we should immediately burst in praise and thanksgiving. Praise him for that, that he knows you intimately, all the people in the earth, and it's as if no one else is around because he has his laser-like focus on you, giving you what you need day by day. That's praiseworthy. You know, God's his presence and his knowledge ought to do a couple of things. One, it should comfort us. It should provide us comfort. Because God knows everything about us. And guess what? He still loves us. He still loves us. He knows every single thing about you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And he still has placed his affection on you if you have a relationship with him. Isn't that sweet? It should comfort us. But then it also should allow us to express caution. Because we should think about the fact that God is considering all of our ways. And it should help us to consider them, knowing that he's examining them day by day. That's what should happen here. And that's what David is letting us see right out the gate in these first six verses of this psalm. I love how J.I. Packer talks about this glorious reality in his book, Knowing God. Uh, he says this about uh, God's knowing of us. He says, there is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that God sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see. And that he sees more corruption in me than which I even see in myself. And there is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and he desires to be my friend. And he has given his son to die for me in order to realize that purpose. It is important to not know merely that God knows us, but to know that he loves us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? God knows us and he loves us. But ultimately, knowing the fact that our infinite God is intimate with us ought to bring us to great praise like David was saying. This is too wonderful for me, but we should praise his holy name. Well, that's the attribute of God's omniscience on display. We need to know that our infinite God knows us and he cares for us. No matter what you're going through, through this life, I hope that you can cling to that reality that God knows you. Well, there's a second truth about this infinite God that we serve. Our infinite God, he, he not only knows us, but he's with us. He's with us. 
There, verses 7 through 12, we see the, the omnipresence of God on display. That doctrine teaches us that, that God is, is ever-present at all times, in all places. And only God can do that, present everywhere. But you understand that God is with us. In verse 7, you see that. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And David isn't asking this because he's trying to run away from God. He isn't terrified by God and trying to run in the opposite direction because he realizes he can't flee from the very presence of God. Even Jeremiah 23, 24 helps us to understand this truth. He says, can a man hide himself in hiding places so that he does not see him, declares the Lord? He says, God says, do I not feel the heavens and the earth? There's no place that you can hide, declares the Lord. You realize that, that there's no place that we can go to hide from God. I remember as a little kid, I used to, used to think about, man, what if I were just to, to climb into a little dark hole? Could God see me there? I said, man, there's a rock in there. I wonder if I could just make myself small and get into that rock. Would God see me there? You could just see the imagination and creativity going on in my mind. That was all I had as a kid. That was all I had. But I used to just wonder, could I, could I hide from God? And the answer is no. no. Survey says no. None of us can hide from God. Even David says, if I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. He's always there. And he always knows. And he's, he's with us in all these places and times. You see, you can't go anywhere. And you think about God. God is just so ever-present that he doesn't even have to go anywhere. Because wherever there is, God is already there. He doesn't have to travel. He doesn't have to take a plane. He doesn't have to jump in a car and, and go. He's there. And our family was, was watching the the latest Ant-Man, and uh, wouldn't recommend it, wouldn't recommend it. I think Marvel failed on that one. They, they, uh, I don't know what they were sleeping on, but that just wasn't good. But um, they, 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 they allowed the Ant-Man to go in this place called the Quantum Realm. And, you know, he'd hit a couple of buttons on his suit, and boom, boom, he's as big as all get out. Boom, boom, and he's small as all get out in this Quantum Realm. But he, he, he shrunk down even to the, the molecular level of atoms. But he was thinking that even if he is at that molecular level, guess what? God still sees him. Nice try, Tony Stark. I mean, he couldn't get there. At the end of the day, no matter how big you are, no matter how small you are, no matter where you go, God is there. He sees you, he knows you, and he loves you. And David is amazed by this. He says, our God is amazing. But this should keep you sober-minded about any sin that you commit as well. You think about it. Every single sin you commit is before the very presence of God. I remember as an unbeliever in college, I had a preacher that was preaching, and he says, whatever you was doing Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, you might as well be doing right here in front of this pulpit because you're right before the face of God. That was sobering as a kid, thinking about that, that whatever I do is before the face of God. People talk about getting accountability partners. The greatest accountability partner that you'll have is the almighty presence of God. He's there with you at every single thing you do. He sees it with utmost precision. He doesn't miss a beat. You can't flee from his presence. So think about that. What do you do at night before you go to sleep? What do you do on a Friday or Saturday night after hours? What do you do on a, on a business trip, on vacation? No one's around but you. What do you do? Well, just know that none of that escapes the presence of God. That should sober us, brothers and sisters, to think about living a life of sanctification because we're before the presence of the Almighty God. But instead of having fear about that, and instead of trying to escape from that, look at what David does in verse 9. He says, even if I take the wings of the dawn and if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will do what? Lead me. He wasn't put off by this, the fact that God has divine scrutiny in his life. He says, anywhere I go, you're going to lead me there. Because I know that I'm before your presence. Your right hand is going to lay hold of me. He says, no matter where I go, even if I'm in the remotest part of the sea, you're there. Somebody should have told the prophet Jonah. I'm sure he could say amen to that. <laughs> he knows. You know, Jonah in the belly of the big fish, you know, he was closer to God than he was even when he was on dry ground. That's amazing. That's how God is. And David uses the repetition. He says, your right hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. 
As he mentioned earlier, the hand signifies God's blessing. He conveys the idea that God is protecting him at all times and leading him all throughout his paths. In verse 11, he says, if Surely if the, the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. You know, David was in some very dark places, on the run for his life, out in the field at night, in the darkness and alone. He was in caves, running from, for his life, men threatening him in all places. He was in, in some dark places. But even in those dark places, he understood the nearness of his God. And that's why he can recall this song. And some of you, you've known some dark places. I remember as a kid, and everybody can probably remember this, looking down that long, dark, narrow hallway to get to the kitchen. And I can remember as a kid, I was like, you know what, it's about seven light switches. I turned all seven of them. I was like, click, click, bathroom light, click. I mean, it was a lamp, click. I had all of them, like seven or eight, just to get to the kitchen as a kid at night. When I should have been in bed, but you know, you get thirsty when you get in bed as kids. That's what they do, keep the parents up. So I'm trying to get to the kitchen. But that was a long, dark, narrow hallway. And then I go back and I visit my mom, and I'm like, the hallway was like three feet. I mean, but you know, as a kid, it felt long, didn't it? it? Felt like it was forever and eternity. But even if it was forever and eternity in a long, dark hallway, guess who was there with me? God Almighty. And even though David is using this literally, that darkness is like to God. You can also think about that even if you're in dark places in this life right now, and you're like, surely God isn't here. Surely he can't see this. Surely God can't be able to help me in this spot in life. Guess what? God is with you. God's with you. Now, where you can go, even if you go through the valley of the shadow of death, guess what? He's with you. Jesus Christ says, I will be with you until the end of the age. That's the faithfulness of the God that we serve. And his omnipresence should bless us because we know that he is ever present with us, no matter how dark that place might be in life. Isn't that a praise? Isn't that a praise? That's the amazing God who knows us. And it should bring us great consolation and joy. You know, darkness is visible to, as God as light is. And it should bless us to know that he's with us. Well, we've seen that our infinite God knows us intimately, and we've also seen that God is with us completely, effectively. Now, let's look at this third truth about our amazing God. Our infinite God, he, he made us. Not only does he know us, and is he with us, but, but God made us. And we'll see that beautiful principle there in verses 13 through 18. It really is the doctrine of God's omnipotence. His power on display. You know, God is all-powerful, and he extends that power to all parts of creation. But it's, it's seen on demonstration in this psalm in his creative power in, in creating human life. And we see that, that our, our infinite God, he's made us, and he's made us uniquely. Look at verse 13 there. He says, for, for you formed my inward parts, and you wove me in my mother's womb. You know, when he talks about this, he, he really is about to explain how God's insight was instrumental in forming David, even when he was in his mother's belly. It's amazing to think about that. He, saw, he says, you form my inward parts. That, that really, that word is the kidneys. The kidneys. He, he said, you, you form that part. And in Hebrew, the, the kidneys was really the, the seat of a person's personality. They're, they're, they're idiosyncrasies, right? All those things that made that person that person. It's in the kidneys. The gut instincts, how they respond to things, their, their personality and their passions was all in the kidneys. And that's what he says, you, you formed me even in the kidneys, the inward part. You knew how I would be, and you wove me together. It literally says he, he embroidered, he knitted David together even when he's there in his mother's belly. That's God's creative power. No one else can do that. We've got all kinds of ways in which technology is advanced, but no one can create a life out of nothing. That's God. He can do that. It's creative powers. He wove you together. and He did that uniquely because you have a unique personality, something that makes you you. Even if you took two identical twins, there's a uniqueness that God has that he has brought, and it's purposeful for that individual, especially those who are drawn to him through his son. Job even says this in chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. He says, your hands fashioned and made me all together. Remember that you have made me as clay, 
And did you not pour out me like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and intertwine me with bones and tendons. You know, Job gives descriptive language of God's creative power, and it's amazing. Start to think about, man, where did bones come from? God. Organs, they just develop, right? God has done all of that. It's a remarkable aspect of his brilliance and beauty. But we should know that God has uniquely made each and every one of us. His text ought to let us know that, that procreation is God's creation. He does that. Humans are responsible for the action, but God is responsible for creativity, that soul that happens. He's responsible for life, and that starts at the moment of conception. God's doing that. He's at work. Just stop and think about that. The color of your eyes, you know, the, 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 the hair on your head, or the lack thereof. I mean, all of that, you know. All that you have is from God. Your, your abilities, your disabilities, your intellect, it's all designed by God, and he's done that uniquely with a purpose in it. That should obliterate the fact that you should be saying, I want to be like something else. I wish I had done this, and why didn't God make me this way? God has done that uniquely and purposefully for his glory. Amen? Amen. We should love that. We should praise him for that, that he made you, you, uniquely by his own design. That should edify us and strengthen us in the times of trial. And even our infinite God, he made us with purpose. Look at verse 14. He says, I'll give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He recognized that God made no mistake in shaping him. He gave him a divine purpose. It's woven even in the grand purposes of God right there in his mother's belly. Burst in praise afterwards. He says, wonderful are your works. We just sang about that. We sang and clapped this morning. Brothers and sisters had church up in here. Had to take the R out of there. We had church today. You know what I'm saying? It's, but wonderful are your works. We just sang about it. And that's what David is doing when he, and that's what happens when you think about this amazing character of God. It should cause you to worship him in adoration and praise. And that's what David does. He's just amazed right here in the midst of this song. He writes, you know, you think about this. David wasn't a doctor. He didn't have all the understanding of, of the, the embryo and the fetus and the development, lungs and organs and bones and how they develop. He was limited in understanding the process. But guess what? David didn't need an MD. He didn't need a PhD. He just needed G-O-D. Because he says, my God knows me well. Even my soul knows it well. God has taught me this, that he formed me. Man can't take credit for that. And even in 15, he says, my frame was not hidden from you. Even when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. The depths of the earth is referring to the mother's womb. And the frame is a skeleton. Unformed substance is his embryo. You know, I wish more people would grab hold of this truth. That God creates life at that moment of conception. And whether it's planned or unplanned, wanted or unwanted, God has created a life right there in the embryo. And the life is sustained, and it should be sustained in honor of the Almighty God. That's Him. He gives life. We should keep it and sustain it and do what He does. But even in that, not only does God give life, he knows when it's going to come to an end. Further in that verse 15 or 16, he says, And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. You realize that God has ordained every single activity in your life. There's nothing that's going to happen. That's, that's just happenstance, random. God has purposed every single thing. The temperature, the way you're going to respond to it, the way you view life, all of those very things God has ordained. All of the activities, it's all done because of his precision. He's pre-recorded all your days, and he knows exactly how they're going to be used to give him glory. That should give us comfort in that. You know, even when the moments where things don't go right, God knew them before you got to them. God knew them, and he's there with you. He says in your book, they're ordained. He knows it. You know, we were discussing the, the psalm at, at the dinner table, and we talk about God's book. One of the girls asked, she said, Daddy, does, does God really have a book? And then one of the, my sons looked at him and said, Girl, are you crazy? <laughs> what kind of question is that? 
Yeah, he really has a book. How else is he going to know who's going to get into heaven? I mean, it was just, it was pretty funny. It's one of those moments where I said, as a dad, I got to teach my, my kids a little bit more theology. Uh, but they were thinking there was going to be some literal book that God has. And he's got to scan it every day to figure out what's going on. But in the end, God, this is figurative language that David is speaking about. But at the end of the day, he says, everything is pre-recorded. He understands it. He knows it. He knows how you're going to respond to it. So you shouldn't get to any moment in your life of trial and think, this is it. God has foreordained that. And guess what? He's done even more. He's provided his spirit and his son to comfort you in the midst of even your most difficult times. Shouldn't we praise him for that? We should praise him for that. And that's what David is doing. So much that he says in verse 17, how precious are your thoughts to me. I pray that as we think about this, we, we just stop and pause and say, man, God is thinking of me, and that should give me praise. He said, even more than, than the number of the sand of the sea. You talk about sand. You know, we went to the beach about a month ago, and we're still shaking out sand and different things in the house. You, you can't even count them all. But he says, you can't count all the grains of sand. And he couldn't even recount all of God's thoughts of him. How much God thinks about him moment after moment after moment each day. You think about the most thoughtful person that you know. The person that's, that's always sending you a text just at the right time. The person that's, 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 that's calling you and saying, hey, how you doing? I was thinking about you. And you were going through something. My mama does that to me. She'll be miles away and she'll call. And I'm like, mom, you called at the right time. I was just having a difficult day. Nothing like hearing mama's voice on a difficult day. But guess what? God has more insight and more care that no matter what you're going through, God knows every detail and he's there for you, saint. It should bless you. Should minister to your soul to know that God loves you. All of his thoughts are amazing. No matter what happens, God loves us. That's a theme that's recurring all throughout the text of this psalm. And more so even when David says, when I wake, I'm still with you. And no, he didn't write a or fall asleep while he was writing this psalm. He ultimately said, hey, morning, noon, night, day, God is with me and it gives me joy. But how about you, saint? Knowing that God has uniquely and purposely made you should prevent you from, from grumbling, complaining about life. Grumbling and complaining about how you are, how he made you. Complaining or even comparing ourselves to others. God made us all uniquely and for a divine purpose. It's not to grumble or complain about that. It's to walk in it faithfully. Amen. That's the response. That's the proper response. And that's David's heart. And that should be our heart as well. Well, God, he knows us. Our infinite God, he is with us. Our infinite God has made us. And the last truth we'll see is that our infinite God, he sanctifies us. He sanctifies us. You know, what happens is, is that here it is, David is responding to this amazing character of God. And you know what his response is? It's loyalty and holiness. He says, if this God is so intimate with me, if he's so tender to me, if his grace has been shown on me, I want to be intimate with him. I want to share in his character. I want to share in his ways. And you know what God does when he sanctifies us? He sanctifies us by teaching us to hate it when others sin against him. He, that's how he sanctifies us. And you see it there in verse 19. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Wait, wait, what happened, David? Did you just switch gears here? You're talking about this amazing character of God, and now you want to kill people? What's up with you? I mean, is that what's going on here? No, that's not what's happening. David isn't trying to go on some killing spree right about now. But he's ultimately saying, these are wicked men that, Lord, I pray that you would slay them. He understands that these evil men were apparently taking the Lord's name in vain. They were men of bloodshed. They were killing men that were made in the image of God. David is so jealous for God to dwell in righteousness and holiness over his creation that he wants to put aside anything that would try to thwart that plan. That's what he says. Slay the wicked. Get rid of them. He even says about his own heart, he says, depart from me, men of bloodshed. David says, I don't even want to have any part with the evildoers. Could you say that of your soul? I don't even want to have part. There's certain things that you just can't do now that you're in Christ and walking with God. Certain things that you need to leave. Certain friends and influences, maybe family members. 
places you just can't go and things you just can't do because it extends evil and hostility towards God. And that's what David is saying. That's a proper response to the, the holy and magnificent God is that we should respond in holiness. That's what sanctifies us. The reason that David has such disdain for those men of bloodshed is because they're seeking to, to thwart God advancing his kingdom on this earth. David was jealous for the kingdom of God advancing, for people being built up, even as they were singing this song. He said he wanted Christ or want God's holiness to be exalted. And in our case, we want Christ to be exalted. And so we say, Lord, deal with those men. God is seeing this and he's pleased at the heart of David. And we've even seen that with, 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 with David before Goliath, right? It was that same sentiment that he had there in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? David wouldn't do it because he was trying to make a name for himself. He was doing it because he was jealous for the name that was above all names. He says, you're not going to taunt God's people. And God gave him victory and granted him defeat over Goliath and all the Philistines because he wanted to make much about the glory of Yahweh. That's how we should be. That's a proper response for us. God sanctifies us because he wants us to hate evil and call it evil. Notice that David doesn't sugarcoat what the enemies are doing. He could have said something else, but he says it's evil. It's bloodshed. It's wickedness. Those things should stir in us a righteous indignation. Not that we want to get revenge ourselves, but we want to leave that vengeance up to God who sees and will judge every single activity under the sun. This is what it is. It doesn't mean that we don't have compassion. I'm sure that David has compassion. I believe the sentiment that he had is, is Lord, either bring them to the end of themselves or bring them to the end. One of the two. Either bring them to you in salvation, Lord, or bring them to condemnation so that you can continue your kingdom plan. And that should be the sentiment of our hearts. As we look around in the evil today, we should say, Lord, help your kingdom to come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the desire of the righteous. And that's a proper response to this amazing God. Well, he sanctifies us by, by teaching us to hate it when others sin against God. But you know something? God sanctifies us by also teaching us to hate it when we sin before a holy God. David wasn't so concerned about the, offen uh, the offenses and the sins of others that he gave himself a pass. Look at what he says in verse 23. He was concerned about his own heart just as equally. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. When David is saying search me, he's, this is a judicial term that's used in multiple psalms. And it really is to say, Lord, I, it's a plea to God to, to test you examine you thoroughly, to, to, to try you like a refiner that's refining metal, testing it to see the purity, if it's worthy. And that's what David is saying. You know, it implies really a genuine relationship with the Almighty to say, test me and examine me because I want to be pure. I want to be pure and righteous and holy. You know, this is something that, that David has, not because he hates evil in others. He didn't want to see evil in his own heart. And is that the same way that you treat your own sin? Do you get angry when others sin and neglect to get angry when you sin yourself? That's how we should be. You think about it. You have a hatred for sin. Is it because of really an attachment to holiness from a desire not to support evil? Or does it spring from theatrics? You want to show everybody that you hate sin or from a disparaging or unforgiving feeling towards others? Hopefully, it's not any hypocrisy in us, but it's a desire to please God and not please ourselves. And that's what David is saying. Try me, examine me, know my heart, and know if there's any anxious thoughts. There was a lot that David could have been anxious for, could have been worried about, could have been consumed about trying to lead God's people. Am I going to do this right? Dealing with the sin in his own life. But at the end of the day, he wanted God to examine him, to show him his sin so that he can turn from it and be in constant intimacy and union and communion with God Almighty. That should be our prayer, saints. We want to make sure that there's nothing in us that would keep us from a consistent, vibrant, healthy relationship with God. Now, you ask God this question. Search me. 
Do you ask God to examine you? Yeah, you might do that in a mutual ministry and life group, but, but do you stand before the presence of God in prayer and say, Lord, show me my sin. Show me my sin. I would encourage you to do that because a proper response to God's infinite reality is having a holy and righteous ambition of our own lives. It says, if there is any hurtful way in me, show me. But ultimately, he says, lead me in the everlasting way. He says, lead me in the everlasting way. And that should be the desire. You see, you can't get to the everlasting way by yourself, and you can't stay in the everlasting way by yourself. It takes the help of God. If you have eternal life right now, that happened because God exercised his grace and allowed you to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what brought you to that everlasting way. But even as you want to continue to walk with God, you should pray that God will lead you and guide you down that path of eternal life. That's it. Our God, he, he wants to sanctify us with his goodness and his character. And that's really an appropriate response of the omni-attributes of God. Lord, sanctify me. Sanctify me. I see you as holy. I know you know me intimately. You're there with me always. You fearfully and wonderfully made me, but make me holy today. That's the prayer of the righteous. And I hope that's our prayer today. But as we conclude this text, I want to give you a few things to just consider as you, as you ponder this psalm in the future. One thing is true. Meditate on God's character. And I'm not talking about read a, a little verse of the day to keep the devil away. I'm not talking about that little cute phrase. I'm talking about read God's scripture and meditate on his character. Meditate on the, the amazing attributes that he has and ponder how they affect you. That's what we should be doing. It's, it's doing deep sea diving in the scriptures for God. Think about his character. You know, some people, they can, they can go on maybe like a Netflix and, and they intended to watch one show. And before you know it, they've watched three or four shows. They've, they've binged a show. How about binge Bible? That's what we should be doing, saints. Thinking about getting to a verse. I'm going to give God a chapter. And before you know that one chapter turns into two and three. And then you walk away and meditate on his, on his principles and on his character. Because you see, that meditation will help you through, through some of life's most difficult times. I had a testimony of that this week. I went down a week ago, uh, Richard Robbins, a dear member of our church, had a, a massive stroke last Sunday and was in critical condition down at Forsyth Medical Center. And Mark Eichert and I went down there to see Clara and the family. And, and uh, I'm going there and I'm, I'm meditating on this psalm. And, and I get in there talked to Clara, gave her a hug, and you realize the first thing that she, her response was? She said, you know what? I just read Psalm 139 to my husband this morning. She didn't even know I was preaching it. She said, I read Psalm 139 to my husband. He's in ICU. He's on a machine trying to help him to sustain life. And she said, you know what? His days are already ordained by Almighty God. He knows every single thing. He's not going to live one minute more a one minute less, because all life is in his hand, and I'm trying to cling to that truth. Here it is, I'm meditating on Psalm 139, and I'm about ready to preach Psalm 139, but she's living Psalm 139. And it was a joy to see that lived out, because she had been meditating on those truths. Well, Richard went to be with the Lord this morning, in the wee hours. We can be praying for the family. But at the end of the day, it's us having those meditations of God and marrying those truths to our heart that will allow us comfort even in our time of need. So meditate on the character of God. The other thing is let your doctrine lead to doxology and let your doxology lead to duty. We don't get doctrine just to be feeding our minds. The doctrine should lead us to praise and doxology to God, praising Him and responding to His holiness. And then it should also our doxology and praise should not just be emotional. It should be active in our life, in our duties, in living out this life that God has called us to live. Doctrine should lead to doxology, and our doxology and praise should lead to our duty. That's the faithfulness of the saint. And at the end of the day, the third principle, live with a clear conscience. Live with a clear conscience. Only the righteous person can say, search me, O God, and know me, and try my anxious thoughts. Only righteous people can say that. 
We should live in a way that adheres to those doctrines that we learn about God. But you know, maybe you're here today and you can't say with a clear conscience, God, search me. Because if he were to search you and examine you, he would find you to be unfaithful. Well, you don't have to leave this morning with that same reality. Don't be in fear of this God who knows you intimately. You can have an opportunity to respond faithfully by trusting in his son, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for all of that condemnation that you should have. And he's paved a way for you to have righteousness to be able to live it out before a holy God. You can give your life to Jesus Christ today. And then you can join the saints that can say, search me, God. See if there's anything that's hurtful in me so that I can be led by you in the everlasting way. For the rest of us, let us realize that our infinite God is intimate with us. And let us do all that we can to be sanctified so that we can maintain our intimacy with him. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we're so humble that you love us and you know every single thing about us. And you've given us all that we need for life and righteousness. I praise you, Lord, that we can meditate and be comforted by the fact that, that you know us completely and thoroughly. And we can be edified in understanding that you're with us at all times. And even knowing that you've created us, Lord, and that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. I pray that we would do the proper response as David did, and that's to desire holiness and righteousness and to be sanctified for your great glory. Lord, help us to be people after your own heart because you have thoroughly examined ours. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today under the sound of my voice that has not a relationship with you through your son, that you would move mightily to their souls and help them to see their ways are before the eyes of the Lord and that they would desire to be led in the everlasting way. We love you, Lord, and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.